You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Uh, so Jesse Driscoll is an associate professor at uh, UCSD of political science, and he's an area specialist. He's, he's uh, really an expert on Central Asia and the Caucasus, and also the Russian-speaking world more generally. So his first book, Warlords and Coalition Politics in Post-Soviet Studies, appeared in 2015 with Cambridge University Press. And that book is an analysis of how in uh, two not often studied countries, that namely Georgia and Tajikistan, in the aftermath of brutal civil wars, uh, the, somehow order was restored and a, a more sort of stable political system uh, came about. And so uh, that's you know, clearly relevant for the topic you can speak on today. But before I mention that, I'll also mention he has a second book called Doing Global Fieldwork, A Social Scientist's Guide to Mixed Methods Research Far From Home, Columbia University Press, 2021. So two very impressive books. Uh, in the span of six years, and then the third book, which is, I guess, is it out? Actually, it's out, out. In print, so it's out now, with uh, Dominique Arel, uh, Ukraine's Unnamed War, which is, the, oh, here, good, yeah, so uh, very, very impressive cover, um, and that is the subject of his talk today. So please join me in welcoming Jesse Driscoll. I'm, I'm glad I can compete with um, Ted's statistics class, um, and um, <laughs> thank you all for being here. I, um, I want to just start things off with a, a kind of a caveat about the title and about the subject. Um, the title, Unnamed War, um, like what, what are we trying to, to do there? Um, look, one of the interesting things about this conflict is that you have two states, uh, Russia and Ukraine, both of which are very, very capable, both of which for the better part of a decade have been uh, at war, both trying very, very hard to not use the word war. Um, in order to describe what's going on. I think that's the first important thing to, to just know about this. The government of Ukraine, uh, at the same time it has been training hundreds of thousands of soldiers in their army, fighting a kind of a brutal trench war um, and you know, getting a lot of assistance in doing so prior to February 23, 2022, um, was um, adamant about calling it an ATO, an anti-terrorist operation, um, and then they changed their name to something a little bit more complicated. But the bottom line is they didn't want to dignify this with um, the language that the Russians wanted to dignify it with. Similarly, since February uh, 24th, uh, Putin has gone to great lengths to not call this a war, um, despite the fact that it's the language that seems to have face validity for the rest of us, he has been careful to call it a special military operation for the protection of the people in the Donbass, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the unnamed war in the title of the book is um, a source of some consternation. Um, at some points in this conflict, um, the naming of the war has been caught up in a lot of politicized um, uh, argument. And that is a very common thing. Uh, in wars of decolonization, exactly what you're supposed to call the events is oftentimes you know, the source of entire sociology classes or entire literature classes. That is not an uncommon thing in comparative context at all, but it is very emotional. And that's the second thing I wanted to acknowledge. And I, you, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. And I wanted to just begin by acknowledging that the emotions around this war well before this year have often been very, very intense. So this is, um, this is a painting. Uh, from 1953. Uh, you don't have to be an art history major to notice that um, it's, um, it's invoking some gendered imagery, right? Um, now, you've got Father Russia literally voting for little Ukraine. And the translation of the Ukrainian is, um, you know, we're voting for peace and for friendship between the peoples. Now, okay, I'm not going to teach a whole course on this. I'm not going to give a whole lecture about this. But like... <clears throat> What does this actually make you feel? Okay? Does it make you feel proud? Does it make you feel nostalgic? Does it make you feel sick? Does it make you feel angry? Okay? All of that is totally valid, right? It is not my position here to pass judgment on this. I just want to acknowledge that this might not make you feel anything at all either. It might be that you feel like you know you're supposed to feel something about this, but it's kind of like somebody else's family dispute and it's not your family, so you're not sure if you're supposed to get involved or if you, you know, 
is this like one of those family disputes where the law has to get involved, or is this one of those family disputes where the law shouldn't get involved because it's like none of your business? And those are very, very common sources of uncertainty for people who wade into this conversation because you approach somebody else's emotions and you want to approach them delicately and you're not trying to offend anyone. I have spent years authentically trying to not offend anyone in this conversation. This is a book that I could not have written myself. It's written with my co-author, Dominique Garel. He is the chair of Ukrainian studies at the University of Ottawa. We went to great, great lengths to cite primarily Ukrainian sources, a couple of English language sources, and hardly any Russian sources. Because we really don't want to be accused of spreading Russian disinformation, which we will be accused of no matter what, because of the emotions. But I acknowledge that those emotions are valid, and we're trying very hard to do thick description in a way that is like capturing the nuance of our subjects, most of whom speak Russian at home, um, and many of whom don't think of themselves as Russians anymore as a result of what happened in February this year. But during the time that we wrote our book, a lot of them were not sure how they wanted to describe themselves, and that complexity is real. So that's a lot of verbiage to begin. And I don't know how it's going to translate on the podcast to our listeners who aren't in this room, but I'm getting kind of you know, positive buy-in from you know, different corners of the room, and I wanted to kind of just begin with that. So questions that I'm going to try to like, tackle today. Um, and if I get to the end and I haven't answered these questions, you should you know, call me out on it. First big question is why did the Kremlin send troops to some parts of Ukraine but not others in 2014? So assuming that we need to wind the clock back to 2014. Second, um, why did the conflict then have the borders it did in 2022 when Putin uh, recognized the DNR, LNR, and invaded? Number three, why was Ukraine more cohesively Ukrainian, which is distinct for us from being geopolitically Western? I think those are two different things. Seven years after the ragged end of the Donbass War, and fourth and finally, why was settling the conflict in the Donbass so difficult? Now, as a political scientist, the fourth question is, like, frankly, more interesting to my discipline than, to, than the others. The others tend to be more of an area studies type um, uh, audience. But for people who just care about the actual answer, you need to answer all three before you get to the fourth. And I'm not going to skip ahead to the end. Um, so the, the basic roadmap for the talk, I'm going to show you this slide a couple times to just keep myself anchored. But I'm going to assume that if you self-selected into this room, uh, we can um, go quickly through the background. I'm also going to assume that you don't want to do any linear algebra with me, so I'm not going to um, force that down your throat. Um, I'm also not going to do, there just may have culpa here, if you're waiting around for the part of the talk where I give you a really well-identified magic trick with a really um, neat data set, and uh, that's just not going to happen, I'm going to show you descriptive data. Um, that uh, is in the purpose of telling a story basically to market my book. And if you want to know more, you've got to spend the $30 or you know, get it on Kindle, and then you know, that's, that's how this is going to go. But there is, this isn't a job talk. There is no magic trick where I show off all of my technical prowess. Um, it's, not, it's not that kind of a thing. So um, I don't know how many of you are Elon Musk followers. Um, you, know, you don't need to out yourselves. But uh, earlier this year, it became obvious that Elon had uh, real thoughts about Ukraine, and he wanted to share them with the world. And um, he is a really interesting guy, actually. Um, one of the things that he wanted the world to know, um, this is great. Uh, this is a picture, by the way, cropped from Vice News with the headline, we regret to inform you the world's richest men is tweeting maps of Ukraine he found on the internet. Um, but what Elon wanted to share with the world is this thing that he found out about Ukraine, which is that before uh, the war before 2014, back in 2012, man, it's an east-west divided society. And you can see he's, he, he's noting for the world, um, very undergrad way, the, you know, blue is the pro-Russia party. Like, who knew? Okay, so um, some of you are um, blown away by this. Others of you are, you know, wondering why I'm showing this to you. Um, I, I'm, I'm showing this to you because it is important for those of you who are new to this part of the world to notice that there have actually been electoral incentives to construct cleavages over this east-west divide, over language policy, that have been weaponized in Ukrainian electoral politics over and over and over again. And those politics have been expressed in public policy debates over and over and over again since independence. So this is oftentimes framed in language that I think should be familiar to most of us living through the kind of culture war version, you know, 
X.0 in the United States right now about how the school curriculum should be taught. What are we teaching our kids about our history? That kind of thing. So deep emotions that polarize people in predictable ways. Evidence of this. In 1994, and then again in 2004, and then again in 2010, presidential contests are decided in runoffs between a candidate that represents the nine oblasts with large Russian-speaking populations, winning with great majorities. Um, that's, you know, and then a candidate from the central western Ukrainian districts carrying all 16 of the Ukrainian-speaking oblasts with great majorities. So that cleavage just keeps polarizing Ukraine, at least at the level of electoral votes in the past. And it's not just language. We talk about this in the book. It is on other issues as well. Specifically, and I'm going to just hit some wave tops here, memory, like exactly what symbolic politics um, you're supposed to use if you're going to make a statue memorializing World War II, or am I supposed to call it the Great Patriotic War? That kind of thing. Uh, security, specifically whether or not you are pro or anti joining the NATO alliance. And um, trade and economics, a desire uh, whether it is good for your district and your neighbors and your union for uh, Ukraine to join the EU, or whether it should join the Russian-centered answer to the EU, a free trade zone for a Mastro-centric area, the Eurasian Economic Union. So. Um, Elon's map is not my favorite map. This is my favorite map. This is an um, electoral map of Ukraine that I made myself. These are um, the single-member districts of Ukraine. Um, for those of you who are um, political scientists, geeks, this is not complete because, of course, Ukraine is actually a, has a hybrid system, so there's also party list seats. So this isn't all of the votes, but it's a pretty good eyeballing of the like pre-2014 electoral map of Ukraine. This is the party of regions. It's not exactly a pro-Russia party. I think that that's you know, a little oversimplified, but it is uh, Russophone leaning. One of the first things they did in 2012 was they passed a language law, which um, first since independence recognized the language of Russian as a legitimate regional language, which has you know, some rights baked into it. This party is essentially anchored in the Donbass region over here. This is where you have voter turnout in the 90s and 100% of the people more or less voting for the party of regions. They um, were very ruthless and they were kind of the like, organizational core of this version of the party of regions. This is Crimea. Okay. Um, I want to just foot stomp what I said one more time. Before 24, just so that you guys can all hear it because I think this is something that a lot of people think they know, but I want to make sure that I say it with total clarity. Before 2013, Russian-speaking community elites in the Donbass had essentially taken over most of the Ukrainian state through electoral means, nonviolently, and they used those electoral means to pass laws that favored Russian speakers. They were ruthless, they were well-organized, but they were nonviolent. They relied on elections to do this ruthless thing where they took over the state. And it depended on the West being divided, like Timoshenko not being the most attractive candidate she could possibly be. And, you know, I hear that happens in democracies all the time. Sometimes one side is divided and the other side takes advantage of it. Okay, this was all totally normal up until 2014. Now, here's, I, I wanted to leave this up here for a while so it could sort of sink into your subconscious because I want you to see something else. This is um, uh, the same kind of heat map of voter turnout voting for Zelensky in 2019. So this is the part that, this is what is omitted from Elon Musk's tweet, is that, yeah, Elon, that's cool. Um, it was east-west divided, but um, Ukrainians have been living in this reality for a while now, and it turns out that um, Z just totally captured, more or less, you know, that part of the country. Now, what's missing is the part of the Donbass which has seceded, the DNR, LNR, no one's counting votes here for reasons that Many of you can anticipate. No one's counting votes here either, huh? What's going on? All right, <laughs> we'll get there. But um, just so that you understand, the one part of the country um, over here uh, that does not vote for Zelensky, this is Poroshenko country. This is like the core of the, um, uh, the opponents. And you can see that even there, Zelensky is picking up, you know, not zero votes. So it is truly a, um, you know, it's, it, it is not a populist wave where he wins 100% of 100% of the districts. It's not like Saakashvili in Georgia. It's not, it's not that. But it is a pretty good mandate of a pretty good hunk of the country, dominantly in the Russian-speaking East. That is the Zelensky coalition. That will be important later. This is a map from Wikipedia um, that I used over and over and over again between 2016 and 2021 in order to show people that the map hadn't moved. 
because if the map had moved, someone would have gone on Wikipedia and shown that the map had been moved, because that's how Wikipedia works. It's competitively updated. So I could just <laughs> use this as a visual aid to make clear to people that the map had been frozen for a really long time as I gave these talks. This is a map from Wikipedia more recently showing the Russian invasion routes using those um, frozen areas as uh, the ways in to the different parts of Ukraine to build the land bridge. Again, completely public. It's not meant to, there's nothing up my sleeve. This is just stuff you find on the internet. Um, but that's, you know, Ukraine 101 with the maps. I wanted to make sure you knew where the DNR, LNR were, where Crimea was, where Zelensky's from, da 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 da. Now, Again, if this were a different kind of class, I would spend a lot more time on this. This is my um, favorite stuff to talk about. I, um, I am at my best when I'm talking about constructivist identity formation projects. I'm at my worst thinking about pathways for accidental nuclear launches. Um, I can teach both kinds of classes, but I really like this stuff and would like to talk about it more, but I won't. The definition of nationalism from Gellner is useful. Political principle, which holds that the political and the national unit should be congruent. It's on the first page of a book called Nations and Nationalism. It's going to be taught well after all of us are dead. It's a very, very good little meme, very memorable, and it's on the first page of a good book. So um, uh, Ben Anderson is also useful here, um, but I'm not going to walk the dog on all of this. I'm just going to say that there is an incredibly rich literature in political science that talks about not only the normative roots of um, this concept of nationalism, which can be traced back to rights in the Enlightenment that can be linked into the Helsinki Accords through some interesting you know, things that happened in the 1970s. But there's also a lot of arguments that are testable that involve core and periphery economics and labor dynamics, assimilation, mass literacy. Benedict Anderson is famous for drawing attention to the role of technology and media causing cognitive changes in people, essentially as they use a textual-based medium that we're all living in to replace religion. Very, very powerful set of arguments. Then, of course, there's war, which has a lot of different effects, not only moving populations around, but also rally around the flag dynamics, and also people assimilating quickly. So like German Americans just become Americans during World War I, stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of stuff in here that political science loves to talk about and has written great papers about. And I'd love to teach that to you, but I don't have time. What I'm going to do is simpler, which is say that the mechanisms are pretty well understood. You have constructivist mechanisms that relate to cognition, mobility, and violence, and state policy can shape them. <laughs> so this is what's, again, like really interesting, is that because we have all of this social science, you can actually put the social science to work and create social outcomes intergenerationally, predictably, 25 years from now as evidenced by the fact that the Soviet Union did this all the time. They knew enough about how the science worked that they could basically run these experiments on people. The Soviet Union is not the only government that did this. In fact, pretty much every government has. But that's why it is like of particular interest to us today. Um, there's a big question, you know, a big set of questions about how much automaticity there is or how much this is baked in by large, slow-moving structural forces. Very important paper, if you care about Ukraine, was written by Keith Darden and Anna Grismelabus in 2006, which suggests that you can trace some of the differences you see in Ukraine today back literally 100 years to Habsburg, Ukraine, to the timing of literacy in, across the Soviet Union. That suggests that you can't actually turn the dials at all, that some of this uh, is just really baked in in a deep, deep way. But um, I would dispute that. You know, I actually think that you can, um, in its strong form, not hold, not hold that up. I think that there's a less essentialist, more factually conservative, more constructivist way to say it, which is that um, state policies are actually capable of moving these variables around. And so people fight over those state policies. <laughs> and, and, and those fights over state policies are what motivates our book. So that's the story the way we tell it. Now with no linear algebra at all. Um, the model that we use in our book is a kind of a two-stage game that focuses its energy on the, the, the ability of Russian speakers living outside of Russia to potentially coordinate and get their way in those bargaining games. That's the argument, is that if you are a Russian living outside of Russia at the moment that the Soviet Union breaks up, 1989, you think of yourself as Russian. You basically have, th you're a beached diaspora. 
the tide goes in, and you're like a little tide pool of Russian speakers living somewhere outside the new mothership. Your home, by the way, it's not like you can just go home to Russia. You haven't lived in Russia in a long time. This is home. My grandparents settled this land, and I'm Russian. Okay. But now there's this new country called Russia, and you're in Kazakhstan. You're in Ukraine. What do you do? David Layton in 1998 said you have three choices. You can exit, go home. You can assimilate, become Ukrainian. Or you can organize. You can stick around and you can do politics to get representation for yourself as a Russian in Ukraine. And um, that requires political coordination. That requires a lot of other things. So we create a kind of a two-stage game that simplifies all of those other things. And it goes like this. In a Russian community, you either coordinate or not. If you can coordinate, if you can successfully coordinate, Russian elites in the community can coordinate, you then make a take-it-or-leave-it offer to the center, which in this case is Kiev, and you say, look, give us a bunch of cultural rights or we secede. And once we secede, Russia might come help. We don't know what will happen, but Russia might come help. Give us what we want. And in equilibrium, which is to say if everyone plays the way they're supposed to play, the center buys them off with cultural rights. Now, a bunch of other things can happen. It could be that they might fail to coordinate. It could, and, and in that case, the Kiev will make an offer to them. It's like, we'll let you keep some stuff in the textbooks, but it, this take-it-or-leave-it thing, forget it. Um, it could be that um, the center will think that their offer is too out of the question, call the bluff, and Russia won't even show up, and then they'll just be violently repressed. Like, a whole bunch of things could happen down here, down the road. But most of the time, between 1990 and um, 2014, Dominique and I say, um, this actually describes pretty well the way that different parts of the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine successfully bargained for their rights. It's how, it, it's, and we do little mini-case studies in the chapter of our book. This is a pretty good description of what happened in Crimea, what happened during a giant coal miner strike, and some other times in Ukrainian history. And, you know, you can read our chapter and decide whether you think that it fits the story or whether we're, you know, round peg square holding the data to fit our, our, our oversimplified story. But I wanted to make sure you guys knew what our story was. The reason that I share all of this, and the reason that even though I know that you don't care about the linear algebra, I wanted to put these slides up for you, is that in the conversation about whether or not this should be called an invasion or an aggression or a civil war or whatever, there's a lot of consternation about exactly when Russia sent troops okay, to assist the people in these communities. How much of the Russian uprising was uh, grassroots and how much of the Russian uprising was astroturf? This is something you and I were talking about in her office just a couple of hours ago. You know, like what happened to the Russian hybrid warfare, like money that was being spread around. Like these were the assumptions that a lot of people had, and this is what a lot of people wanted to know more about. Dominique and I say that the real story is actually in stage one. The real story in Ukraine is about Ukrainian agency by Ukrainians, passport Ukrainians. Some of them are Russians. Some of them become political Russians over the course of deciding that that's the best way to try to bargain. Some of them um, end up in the DNR LNR, saying that they were Russian all along. But at the beginning of the conflict, you know, they, they had Ukrainian passports. And some of the, some of the communities coordinated successfully. Some of the commu communities didn't coordinate successfully. And that coordination or non-coordination is the interesting variation that explains the answer to the question of why Russia did what it did. So. This is the structure of the book. Um, we can come back to this slide later. Um, but it lays out what we do in each of the chapters of our book and the basic answers to the question. So um, chapter five, where do you get quick coordination by Russian-speaking communities? Crimea. It's over in about three days in Crimea. Um, chapter six uh, is what happens everywhere other than Crimea, um, all across the south, all across the east, Odessa. Kharkiv. Um, we, we go essentially community by community and we give you week by week what happened in these places, all of which end up eventually voting for Zelensky. <laughs> but what happened in 2014? You know, like, like there was a moment there, uh, more than a moment there, where it was not entirely clear what was going to happen. And chapter six is probably the new history where we're actually breaking earth on things that we don't think are documented very well in the existing literature. 
chapter seven is very well documented in the existing literature, but we add something to it. Um, the chapter on the Donbass War, which is where you actually get violence, is um, told a little bit differently in our telling than in others. I'll get to that in a minute. And then uh, we conclude the book essentially um, with Vladimir Putin's decision to invade and to overturn things. So it is not, to be clear, um, it, 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 this is not the best book you can read about the, the current war since February. If you, you need to know uh, how we got to February, but this is not a book about what happened this last year. Academic publishing doesn't move that fast. All we can do is give you 2014 to 2022. Um, and again, you know, if you want the linear algebra, it's you know, to your heart's content in the back of your book. So um, what I assume you want to hear more of is the actual uh, stories from the book, less the theory. But um, if you have any questions about any of that, I'd love to answer them because, like I said, nationalism is, is the best version of me. All right, so I already explained what this, um, what this picture is. This is the 2013 electoral map of Ukraine. Um, if you care about which leg of the game tree you're on, um, they were successfully getting rights for Russians. So as most of you are aware, um, Maidan uh, 2013 is a, mass, a set of massive street protests that begin over whether or not Ukraine is going to join Russia's answer to the European Union. That's the Eurasian Economic Union, the EEU. Um, this is um, very, very controversial uh, because it is locking in free trade with Russia, which is something that a lot of people in the Donbass think is a really, really good idea. And people in the western parts of the country think is a betrayal of everything they've been working for for the last 30 years, since independence. And um, it turns out that that can really motivate people. It turns out that you can actually get um, uh, an awful lot of social energy mobilized around that question. And um, I don't think that that should be a surprise to anyone when you really think about it. Uh, the stakes are existentially high. Uh, when you think about the polarization that I just baked into the conversation about nationalism. Actually existentially high. This is something that I understand much better as a parent than I did before. Something about my children's life opportunities, yep, that would get me in that square. So um, the driving fear is subordination to an Eastern party grab for power at the center. And the metaphor that this is actually not Ukrainians who are Russian, but that it's actually Russia reaching into our country in time to manipulate our country. Of course, that's you know in the ether. Of course, it would be. Also worth noticing that all of this is covered in a completely different way on Russian television than it is on Western media television, right? Like if you look at this picture, you'd think you were looking at 1989. If you look at this picture, you know you'd think you were looking at Les Miserables. Right? It's just a completely different story. It's kind of like Fox News and MSNBC describing the very same event, right? Like, um, so the coverage on Russian media is completely different. Completely different of these events. There is police violence and there is protester violence. And if you get the story in the West, you hear a lot about the police violence. And if you get the story in Russia, you hear a lot about the police, you know, about the protester violence. Sorry, I said that backwards. Get the story in the West, you hear a lot about police violence. Get hear the story in Russia, you hear a lot about protester violence. Different amplifications of different scripts. So to simplify greatly, but this is you know, what you have to do to do social science. Um, by January, it is pretty clear that the Ukrainian state lacks the capacity to stop the protesters. And um, it's more complicated than that, but this is, you know, to, it's partially because the state's just not ruthless enough it's partially because the tactics that they use backfire in the social imagination. Like every time they go out to beat the protesters, people say you're beating our kids and then there's more protesters, um, which maybe could have been solved if they were a little bit more ruthless, uh, but, but they weren't. Um, and um, it's partially because support comes from not just the Ukrainian West, but the Ukrainian center. And it's partially because of liberal constituencies from Western Europe, um, which of course, you know, lead to the conspiracy in Russia that this was all the CIA. And it's partially because some of the groups, not all of the groups, but some of the groups were very strategic in their use of violence against the state. So there is a, um, uh, a problem in the description that sometimes happens in the West where we imagine civil society in Ukraine to be like a bunch of vegetarian kids on Facebook. It's not. Like some of, some of the civil society that was effective on Maidan had much more of a Charlottesville feel to it. And like that's just, that's just factual. It is amplified by Russian media, but it is factual. Things come to a head on February 20th, 2014. This is the day of the Maidan massacre. Snipers fire on protesters, 40 people die. Okay? Um, 
Again, to be perfectly clear, the police used violence. The police used brutal violence. They used tatushki. They bushed in people to do, to do terrible things to the protesters. I mean, there's not like moral equivalence. But there is a um, moment here where this escalates explosively. Let's go back to that map. On the day of Maidan Massacre, there's a special meeting of parliament. What's discussed is a symbolic censoring resolution, which basically says all the violence is the president's fault. It orders the police back to the barracks. You know, like the, 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 it's not supposed to pass, right? It's the kind of thing that people in the opposition do all the time because they know that they're up against a really well-disciplined, ruthless party structure that has the votes to stop it from passing. This is a picture of the votes that would have stopped it from passing. But it actually does pass somehow because these people defect. Here, I'll show you again. These people defect. So the resolution passes, and the police are ordered back to their barracks and everything. So um, by the end of the day, it's clear that the entire security force of the regime is defecting to the Maidan, and there's actually no one protecting the president. And so there's like something really interesting happens. There's this whole wave of party of regions defections that day through the night, the next day. People keep their seats in parliament, but they start making these dramatic speeches where they take off their jackets and they take off their party lapel pins and they say, "I don't want to be part of this evil machine anymore." You know, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. And so by uh, close of business the next day on February 21st. This is the party of regions. Now, one reason that I like these pictures is that absolutely no one who has actually worked in the US government thinks the CIA is this good. Yeah. Okay? Okay? People um, in Russia imagine the CIA is this good, but it's not. Don't you think we'd do it more if we could? Okay? Just let that sink in over, the, over the, the rest of the afternoon. Wouldn't the CIA do it more if they could? Okay. Second, it is important for you to notice that even after this basically nonviolent, basically successful civil society social movement thing, whatever you want to call it, successfully achieves all of its objectives, there are still big parts of the country that continue to see things from the point of view of the old regime, and they're not like randomly distributed around the country. Okay. As far as US policy is concerned, and as far as a lot of people who consider themselves friends of Ukraine, some of whom are in this room, are concerned, this is like the beginning of the new legitimate state in Ukraine. And it is called the revolution of dignity, and we are off to the races. And like the first thing that happens, if you're just watching this gleefully from California, is you watch the New York Times run all these pictures of Yanukovych's house. And you know people just start wandering through and taking all of these pictures of corruption, and you celebrate. If you're in Russia, that is not what you are doing. If you are in Russia, you're getting a different set of narratives on the news. And I've put this up with no images at all because it's a kind of a bloodless way to see just how different the narratives are that are being shoved down the throat of Russian speakers. Okay? We're all familiar with how media bubbles work. We've, we've heard a lot about that in you know, America and political science. Okay. Um, we, uh, we, in the West, with our revolution of dignity narrative, um, uh, simply use different talking points than the Russians do. They call it a coup. <laughs> and um, when you tell them, well, there's no evidence the CIA was involved, they look at you like you're stoned and naive. <laughs> and, and that's just factual. Again, I'm not trying to whitewash it, I'm not trying to explain it, but these two narrative tracks split in 2014 and they have not come even close to coming back together again. Dominique and I write this book not imagining that because we write this book, all of a sudden, oh, there's going to be a healing moment. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, no. We notice that there's a split. You could notice it at the time. I mean, I wrote a paper in Public Affairs which used Twitter data to like show the split you know, across, the, across the country. Um, that's how Dominique and I met and began our collaboration. But the, the point for you guys right now in an antiseptic way is to just see the split in narratives. If you want imagery to go with it, I will point out there was also quite a bit of totally fabricated stuff floating around the Russian internet. Pictures of fabric, you know, just completely fabricated stories. You know, there's a Russian boy crucified by Ukrainian far right. It never happened. You know, there's like, look, this is, this is completely on the nose. You've got a NATO flag, a Nazi flag, and a flag of Azov. Um, this is like uh, <laughs> prob probably fake, <laughs> you know, but you'd be seeing a lot of pictures like this. 
if you were getting your images, you know, you're getting your newsfeed from your phone, you know, uh, in, in the Russian language speaking space. So um, I'm, I'm being long-winded. That's the war, you guys. Um, you can lay the map of the DNR, LNR down over the uh, parts of Ukraine that have seceded and not wanted to go back and the parts of Ukraine that voted for Zelensky. This is the same Wikipedia map I put up before. So what happens differently in the different places? Um, uh, in Crimea, to simplify, there was no war of any kind. If, if we wrote a book only about Crimea, it would have a different title. Uh, a couple people died. Pretty clean. Uh, just no pro-Ukrainian street forces would be the simple way to put it, is that everywhere else in Ukraine, the real story of Maidan is actually the ability of the Ukrainian nation to mobilize massive street power, not just in Maidan, in the square, but all around the country, really. The West and the East, really everywhere, you have these like massive social forces clashing. And the one place that there is no social force present on the street advocating for Ukraine, qua Ukraine, is Crimea. You've got some, um, some Tatars. They are the heroes that try to stop the vote, and that's why the little green men have to, like, unveil. And the truth is it does not take very many little green men. I think the number was 67 to make the whole thing go. And the vote happened um, about uh, one month after the order to send troops was given, and it's about as clean an uh, operation as we will ever have to study in, um, uh, in this space. Um, it's, it's also just an easy place to do this. It's easy for sociographic, like, sorry, sociological demographic reasons. Um, it's easy for military science reasons. It's, all you really have to do is lock down six kilometers of an accessible land bridge over two bridges. You know, it's just, an, it's just a good place for Russia to be able to pull this kind of thing off. Um, this is data that we have on the um, service-by-service defections within the Ukrainian state security apparatus. So these are people within the Ukrainian, um, you know, former Ukrainian security services that declared for Russia relatively early in the conflict. Um, you know, it's uh, how many of the um, members of the state security administration did not defect to Russia? 20 of them, 1%, 99% went over to Russia. Okay, pretty fast. That's coordination. Uh, these are uh, data from uh, Volodymyr Ishenko, a Ukrainian sociologist who collected um, high integrity data on very, very large protests. Um, the um, picture that this paints maps fairly well onto um, the east-west split that we were talking about with the Elon Musk tweet before. So our heroes in our story, our villains, most of the data in our book is um, this part is, is gathered in this part of the country by Russian speakers. Russian-speaking Ukrainians in our telling of the story, but some of them would have self-defined as Russians. Um, this is what it looks like when the militias form. Is it a story about like a groundswell of opinion? Not necessarily. We're not making claims about like the median voter in the DNR, LNR, or Odessa or anything like that. It's, it's really not about the median voter in the environment that we're describing. It's about street power. That's why Dominique thought it was interesting to co-author with me because I know a little bit about how militias are organized because of the research I did for my first book. You know, we're writing about people who know how to um, get a large crowd of football hooligans at the same place at the same time with tire irons. And um, that has nothing actually to do with the median voter. Um, but that is what is captured with Volodymyr's data fairly well. When you get a street protest of more than 10,000 people, that is what you are talking about. You start to get these guys on the fringe. So, um, to go through this quickly, um, in the background of all of this, as Russia is telling its own story about all of this, the story that Russia is telling is the story of anarchy in Ukraine after a coup and a civil war, which is why the language of civil war makes Ukrainians crazy. Right? doesn't matter that in political science we have our own vernacular about civil war. It's it, it, like Ukrainians do not want to listen to a lecture from someone like me about how well like 
you just have to understand that since Stathis Kalibas wrote his book in 2006, the term civil war is actually just an analytic construct. We Americans like to use civil war to describe Iraq and Afghanistan and other places that we invade. You know, it's like nobody, they don't care. They, they just care about us repeating a word that is offensive to them. So I've gotten some pushback on that, and I think reasonably so. We changed the title of our book based on that feedback. So with that said, you can see pretty easily from this template why Russia liked that language. Russia has a veto and Ukraine doesn't on the UN Security Council. So Russia gets to use the UN Security Council as a kind of a backstop to all of the other institutions, some of which Russia is not a member of and will never be invited to join, some of which Ukraine is not a member of but may someday be invited to join, some of which both of them are members of and can veto each other's resolutions and thus it's kind of unwieldy. In the back of all of that, there is the UN Security Council. And Russia begins to play a waiting game where they use the Minsk Accords as a lever to imagine a peace in the future. And it's, you can go read them. They're about two pages long. The Minsk Accords are not complicated to understand. Um, and you can see, if you read them carefully, what Russia expects the conflict resolution process to look like. And the way Russia tells this story I'm, I'm again simplifying, and you have to read the book to get the whole story, but, you know, sympathy for the Russian position. They say that with all this anarchy and all this civil war after the illegal CIA coup, which, of course, the West won't admit that it was involved in, but after all of it, you know, imagine a long block of text that you don't agree with. After all of that, there was this violence, and people were dying. This is tragic, right? This is, um, this is data from the UN High Commission for Human Rights off-the-shelf data, okay? Um, and, you know, you, it's, for those of you who work with data in civil war zones, it's very rare to have data that comes out of war zones end in single digits. This is very clean data. Like, we know, was it, was it 9,577 people? Nope. 78. You know, it's like, this is, this, this is, this is, this is great. Okay. I've broken them down in civilian deaths and the total deaths of civilian and military deaths. So you can see early in the conflict, civilians are making up the majority of the casualties. Of course, those numbers are fuzzy because you have some people who are probably in the military who are out of uniform. Just ignore that. You know, it's, 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 we can play around with these data later. That's not the point of the visualization. The point of the visualization is that Russians get to have it both ways now at the UN Security Council. On the one hand, they strenuously deny and to this day, continue to strenuously deny that they're even there, right? It's like, not, we were, we never even sent troops. Um, you know, just not us. You, you, you must be imagining something. This is, this is a very, like, deny, 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 that they're even there. On the other hand, um, there's this battle at Ilovaisk and this battle at Debelseve, which are the two places where the Ukrainian military finds itself um, essentially getting annihilated by direct conflict with the Russian military. They're not working very hard to hide the fact that they're there. That's what leads to the signing of the Minsk Accords and the reason that the Ukrainians remember those accords being signed at gunpoint. What Russians remember is that, hey, you know what's so interesting is after those two events, like civilian deaths just totally flattened out completely. How interesting is that? <laughs> um, which allows them to tell a kind of a humanitarian intervention story which is exactly the mirror image of the story that the United States likes to tell in Kosovo. Just like how the United States had a responsibility to protect and save all of those lives in Kosovo uh, over our objections at the time, we, we have a right to intervene and save a bunch of lives in our sphere of influence. And it's, it's like R2PR, responsibility to protect Russians. And that plays very, very well inside the hermetically sealed like Russian media bubble. Like that's you know, Russia gets to ha you know, have its cake and eat it too with those diplomatic talking points. And it has some face validity to it from a certain point of view. Now, um, this is data that you won't find on the internet, uh, but I'm very proud of it. Um, this is data that Dominique and I collected uh, with help from, uh, a lot of help from Ukrainian civil society. We coded all of the people that we could find, and Ukrainians are very good at keeping track of these people who had died on the front lines, fighting off what they remember to be an invasion from Russia. Right? And we found their birthplaces. 
So this is the birthplaces of all of the Ukrainian martyrs corrected by population of rayon. So what you have here is data. You could, don't imagine it as a, a density map of deaths. Imagine it as a density map of mourning parents. Right? These are like the mothers who light candles every year remembering their son who was you know, killed when Russians invaded us in 2014 and we have been fighting for our sovereignty ever since. This is obviously in a sense OBE you know, because of the war in 2014. This is, this is all just his, of historical interest to you. But um, what I like about this map is that it shows without any econometric tricks and nothing up my sleeve, it's kind of the whole country, you guys. It's kind of east and west. A lot of people showed up for this fight. I've put in a dotted line here um, Novorossiya, historical Novorossiya from the time of Catherine the Great. Just show of hands. How many of you know, know what I'm talking about when I say Novorossiya? Do you, all right, good. So this is Novorossiya. I want you to all just remember, speaking of nationalism, Vladimir Putin had a theory that all of these people would be firing west, right? As soon as you give them a chance, right? As soon as we take Crimea and kind of kick that first domino, these people can't wait to get out. They will be forming militias and they will be firing west. No, sir. <laughs> no, no, they won't. Um, no, they didn't. So what's hilarious is that, I mean, it's not hilarious, it's tragic, I should not use that word. Um, what is surprising is, is that he really seems to have thought, again, in 2022, that all they needed was a bigger push. Like, okay, 67 soldiers in Crimea, all right, get me a napkin, let's do some longhand algebra. How many more troops will it take to just get the whole thing? That seems to have been more or less the planning process for um, like, you know, troop enforcement. Uh, for, 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 uh, I shouldn't say that. But I'm sure it was more complicated than that. <laughs> I'm sure it was more complicated than that. But the theory of victory would rely on a lot more people in Novorossiya wanting to be part of Putin's project than there was evidence for, at least according to our book. I'll leave it at that. The final thing to say, and then I will turn this over to Q&A for the last 20 minutes, is that I wanted to give the like, main prediction of the model. Uh, if you can't coordinate in the Russian-speaking communities, you can't bargain as well for your rights. That's the bottom line of the reason that I went through all of that bargaining stuff before. So the model would predict that even though Zelensky's winning in the East, you're going to have fewer cultural rights for Russians in the Ukrainianizing state, and that is exactly what you see. You see it well before the war, but the war, of course, is just going to supercharge it, right? So this is a picture of a statue of Catherine the Great being pulled down in Odessa. This kind of thing is going to go on and on and on and on and on. And the war, to be honest with you, is going to end up being such a confound that it will make our book OBE. Like, the fact that it was going on, you know, before the war is only of historical interest to a couple of people. But if you care, it had been going on for a long time. The very first thing that the government did in Maidan after some administrative, you know, sorting out of the new government in what we now call the Revolution of Dignity, the very first thing they did was overturn that language law that the Party of Regents had passed in 2012. They could have done anything. They could have done absolutely anything. They could have signed a symbolic resolution saying they wanted to be in the EU. Nope. Language law. First thing they did. Now, um, that was probably, in retrospect, not the best idea because it played very well into uh, Russian talking points about a desire to, quote, ban Russian, unquote. Now, technically, that's not what it was, but you can see how, in an emotional state, that was probably um, an own goal. Uh, they have since come back, by the way, with a new education law that clarifies exactly what they meant by that. That one didn't get, that was overturned by the, you know, the process, the president didn't sign it. So in 2017, they had the votes with a, with a new, like, highly clarified education law that Ukraine will be the only language of instruction permitted in high schools, um, emphasizing unitariness of the state, um, like, it, chooses language that is specifically brushing up against the language in the Minsk Accords, almost as if they're declaring that they're not going to implement those parts of the Minsk Accords. All of this is the kind of thing that we talk about in a couple of pages in chapter eight of our book. It's mostly OBE, but I wanted to throw it out for you. Um, those of you who care about religious history and um, church autocephaly, very hard to unring that particular bell. That's not a government policy. That's just something out there with patriarch Bartholomew and all of that. 
Um, but finally, um, in 2019, prior to Zelensky's you know, uh, consolidation of power, um, when they weren't sure who was going to win and what Zelensky was going to do, the Constitution was amended to clarify that NATO aspirations cannot be modified by laws of subsequent government. So even if Zelensky had come in and said, okay, now that I'm in power, I don't want to be in NATO, he couldn't do that. So these are examples of locking in a bargaining position with respect to Russian versus non-Russian Ukrainian identity, which was locked in. And that sets up a problem, which is that it's very difficult for the government in Kiev to actually offer the people in the DNR, LNR something better than they already have, which is um, you know, ugly because they're being bombed, but if they care about their cultural rights, they, uh, it's not clear how they're going to get the rights that they already have in a new state in the status quo. That's a commitment problem. This has been well studied by political scientists. My colleague Barbara Walter um, can uh, give you an entire syllabus on this problem, but that's where our book ends up. And you have to do a little linear algebra to get there, but that's the analytic argument. So to conclude, um, I, I hope I answered these questions. If not, you can ask me more in the Q&A. Um, the big puzzle, of course, is what was Vladimir Putin thinking invading this country? And I honestly think the answer is that they just thought it would be easy because they hadn't read our book. Um, <laughs> now, I couldn't believe that they thought it would be easy. And I thought that they were going to make different choices because they thought it would be hard. And so I'm glad they didn't read my book um, because it means that the miscalculation is something that can now be taken advantage of um, in, in the service of, I think, a, uh, a better, normatively better future. Um, but I'm biased there, and I admit that bias. I want to also note, by way of conclusion, that um, ours is not the only way to go after this. So if you ask the question the way that I just did, like, what was Russia thinking, it almost invites you to just pull out a biography of Vladimir Putin and start psychologizing the guy, or to start talking about all the many things that, you know, I'm at, I'm at Madison. Jessica Weeks will tell you that she knows why Vladimir Putin did what, she, what, what he did, right? Because Jessica Weeks knows an awful lot about like, the incentives of autocrats and bargaining positions in IR. Like, she's made a very, very good career on that. Um, like, and those are, those are very, very good persuasive arguments. Um, uh, the security dilemma, NATO expansion. Like Many, many, many people have spilled a lot of ink answering the question, why did Vladimir Putin do what he did? And I just want you to notice that none of them mentioned anything that I just talked about. You know, you can talk a good game about why Vladimir Putin did what he did without mentioning anything about Ukraine. Um, and I think that's part of the tragedy here, is that just because, you know, I can tell a post-colonial story about intra-Ukrainian bargaining and all of that kind of stuff, it is interesting primarily um, to Ukrainians and to friends of Ukraine. And if there aren't enough of those people out there in the world listening, then that story can easily be lost. So with that, uh, thank you very much for your time.